If you can open to 1 John chapter 3, we'll look at verses 4 through 10 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin. 1 John 3, 4 through 10. It's getting about halfway through his letter here. We'll finish up in Advent, uh, or at the beginning of Advent, we'll start a new series. Um, probably, hopefully, God willing, on uh, Genesis 1 through 3 or 4. So that's what's coming next. But we're in the middle of 1 John, and his letter, uh, John's letter, is focusing on how you can know that you have a relationship with God. Uh, it's just that simple, how you can know that you have a relationship with God. We don't naturally think very well about this subject. Uh, some of us pretty arrogantly assume that we have that relationship. Of course, I have a relationship with God. Um, others of us rather despondently assume that we could never have that relationship. That is beyond us. It's impossible for, for me. Uh, it's great if you can have that, but I'm, I'm, I know I can't. My sins are too great. Um, so we don't think naturally um, very well about the subject of having a relationship with God, but God wants you to think clearly about it. God wants you to know. And that's why he inspired this letter. He inspired John to write this letter. Uh, so I don't know if you've thought about that much, but, but your, your particular interest, uh, your particular ability to process things like whether you have a relationship with God, and your interest in that is not what has brought you here to this point. Uh, it's not... Um, God's interest is what has brought you to this point. God's interest uh, is to reveal to you what uh, you need to know to have a relationship with him. He's the real reason why you're here listening. And uh, so that's, you should pay attention. You should pay attention because it's, it's God himself that wants you to think clearly about having a relationship with him. And he says that there are certain indicators of this relationship that can give you assurance that it's true for you, that can uh, give you uh, encouragement that you really do know God, that you really are saved. Um, or alternatively, there are these indicators that can uh, goad you to seek that relationship because you may not have it yet, right? An indicator that shows you may not really know God as he has revealed himself to you in, in the scriptures and, and through Jesus Christ. You may not really know him, and therefore you need to be goaded to pursue that relationship, right? Um, so in this morning's passage, he he draws the contrast between the indicators that reveal, on the one hand, that you are his child, uh, versus the indicators, on the other hand, that uh, show you, that reveal uh, you to be a, a child of the devil. That's provocative language, isn't it? Um, but, but God is the one who says, you may be a child of the devil, and you need to know that. Right? Um, that's the kind of language that uh, gets on your nerves, that hits nerves. I, I, We'll talk about what that means, okay? We'll talk about what, what that means. But God wants you to be clear about it, that there really are only two options for you. Either you're his child or you're a child of the devil. And um, so hang in there. We'll think about that, uh, what the Bible says about that. So the three things I want to talk about this morning, just before we read the scripture. Um, first, what your sin says about you. What your sin says about you. Secondly, what Jesus has done about your sin. And then thirdly, what the gospel now says about you what your sin says about you, what Jesus has done about your sin, and then what the gospel now says about you. So um, so let's pray, and then we'll read from John's letter here. Father, as we consider your word, um, the word that you have graciously given us for the purpose of knowing you, we pray that you would overcome the resistance that um, dwells in all of our hearts, by your spirit, the power of your spirit, would you please use your word now 
to awaken in us uh, faith and awaken in us um, to, to, to make our hearts new, to draw us into a deeper relationship with you and to assure us that we truly have a relationship with you and to change us by that relationship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And um, real quickly before I read this, there are um, basically the first half of this is John's argument and then he repeats it with kind of a different perspective. So it's like the same argument being given twice. Uh, verse 8 is the beginning of the repeat, the repetition, so the parallel argument. So just keep that in mind as we read. <clears throat> Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So first, what your sin says about you. Let me just say up front that this passage can be very confusing. Um, as you read it, if you think that John is saying that you need to be perfect to be a real Christian, right? The language in there, um, it's, it's really easy to read it that way. Uh, it's not what it's about, but, um, but it's, it's very confusing to us, especially when John has already said earlier in the letter in a few places, he said, uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So John's already made it clear that even Christians sin, right? Even Christians sin. Um, even people who have a real relationship with Jesus, we rebel against Jesus, we rebel against God, we break God's laws, we have distorted desires, right? So he's not teaching sinless perfection in this passage. As you read it, it's easy to see that, but um, it's easy to think that, that he's teaching sinless perfection, but he's not teaching that, and that... That means we've got to do some work to figure out what he does mean when he makes such strong, unqualified statements as no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. He cannot keep on sinning. Right? That's a pretty strong language, so we need to figure out what that means and you know, how that reconciles with the clear biblical truth that you do sin, no matter who you are, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or not. It's you do sin, and your experience is that you do sin. So how does that reconcile with this? And now, the main point of this passage is actually good news, but we've got to start with the bad news because that's where John starts. So if you're prone to despair over the thoughts of your own sin, just hang in there. It'll get better. Um, if, you're, if your conscience is really sensitive already to your own sin, then you're actually not the one that John is addressing at this point. So um, just hang in there. Um, he's addressing those who minimize their sin, right? minimize their rebellion against God or who are in denial about it or who are indifferent to it or who want to believe it doesn't really matter. 
that John was uh, confronting in his day the idea that was floating around the church that sin wasn't really a big deal. It's an idea that has continued to float around the church. But there were certain folks back then calling themselves Christians who taught that the concept of sin was primitive, unenlightened, and irrelevant to the relationship that uh, they enjoyed with God, right? irrelevant to their faith. Um, and it does sound familiar to us. They, they had a worldview that uh, allowed them to dismiss the gravity of sin, right? the gravity of it. And they had bought into, uh, for them, it was, it was a dualistic view of reality. Right? Um, dualism is uh, the strong distinction between the spiritual and the material. And they saw that great division between the spiritual and material, and what really matters was the, the spiritual, right? That's what really matters, obviously, in a dualistic paradigm. Uh, what you did with your body, the material stuff, how you interacted in the material world, has no real bearing on your spirituality, right? So um, basically, it was a way for them to justify their sin, to excuse their sin, to convince themselves that it was okay to sin because they really liked to sin, right? And that's, um, that's a tendency that's inside every single human being on the planet. We like to sin. We rebel against God because that's who we are. That's inside of us. You know? um, that's why we do it. And boy, would we love it if there were no consequences for that. If there were a worldview that allowed us to dismiss the gravity of sin. So we cook up stories and worldviews and religions and philosophies that enable us to feel good on a spiritual level about our sin. And John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, talking about the heretics of John's day, says that they seem to have taught that to the enlightened Christian, questions of morality were a matter of indifference. Today, our sins are excused either by euphemisms like personality problems or by the plea of cultural relativity. So the, the big problem is that when we do this, when we excuse our sins, when we justify our sins uh, and kind of dismiss them or deny them, um, the big problem comes when we do this at the same time trying to maintain that we have a relationship with God. When we uh, try to justify or excuse our sins and make them of no consequence, and at the same time try to maintain that we've got a relationship with Jesus. And if you're part of the church, then you have to do something like that every time you commit a sin. You have to do that internally. Every time you commit a sin, every time you get sinfully angry, every time you lust, every time you're scheming and manipulative because of greed, every time that you're self-serving, you have to justify it to yourself. You have to justify it to yourself. You have to justify your rebellion against God and convince yourself that it's not really a big deal. And that maybe it's not even really rebellion against God at all, right? It's probably just a bad habit. It's probably just a rut. It's one of my quirks. Blame it on my genetics or something, right? Um, That path often starts off with secret addictive behaviors um, that break God's law. Things that you excuse away as minor, insignificant, um, irrelevant to your real relationship with God. It doesn't really touch on your relationship with God. And that thinking then grows to influence all you're thinking about sin. And if you go a long way down that path, then you'll end up convincing yourself that keeping God's law just isn't an important part of your relationship with God. It's not a vital part of your relationship with God. You'll convince yourself that you can maintain a healthy spirituality regardless of your desires, 
regardless of your behaviors and your, your words. Um, and to this, John says, no. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That's what he says. So lawlessness it just means a disregard for God's law, a violation of it. It's a transgression of God's law. James uh, puts this really well in his, in his letter uh, in chapter 2. that He says that if you break one of God's law, you... Uh, one of his laws, you keep all the other commandments, you break one of his laws, then you become guilty of the whole law. Because breaking a law isn't just about breaking some kind of abstract rules. There's a lawgiver that you have offended in breaking that law. You have violated the relationship, right? This is a relational activity, this sin. It's not just, um, you know, I, I broke some abstract code. You are opposing God himself. You're opposing the one who gave all the law. And so, James says, when, when you break one law, even though you kept all the others, right, you break one, you're guilty of the whole thing because you've opposed God. You've set yourself, yourself up as an enemy of God. That's what lawlessness is, right? The point that John is making is that you can't say, I'm in relationship with God, while you oppose God with your, your sin and your lawlessness. Those things don't go together. He says you're deceiving yourself when, when, when you think they can go together. And this is what your sin says about you. This is the bad news, right? This is what your sin says about you. It says that you're against God, that you oppose him, that you think that you know better than he does how your life should be run, how this world should be run, how your relationships should go. You think you know better than he does. In fact, you'd rather that he just wasn't there so that you could do it your way. That's what sin says about you, is that you oppose God. And in fact, for John to say that sin is lawlessness um, is probably a technical term that applies to opponents of Christ. It's not just a descriptive term, it's like a technical term right, that applies to opponents of Christ. He's not just pointing out the connection between sin and the transgression of the Ten Commandments. Uh, he's probably referring to the category of enemies, the lawless ones, right? Um, the category of enemies of Christ that earlier in his uh, letter he called antichrists. It's those who pretend to be on God's side, right? Pretending to be on God's side while really they're against him. Uh, those that Jesus and the apostles were always warning the church about. He said earlier in 1 John 2, <clears throat> children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. That's that category that he's talking about, people who pretend to know God, who even confess faith in Christ in some sort of way, but really are set up against him. And um, Paul uses the language of lawlessness when he talks about it in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says that that day, the, the day of the Lord, the day of the coming of Christ, it will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself, proclaiming himself to be God. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is the activity of Satan. Right, so lawlessness for the apostles is just like this technical term for those who will, uh, who will oppose Jesus, who ultimately will be defeated by Jesus as his opponents. And John says that... Um, when you make a, a practice of sinning, 
you're one of them. When you make a practice of sinning, you're opposing Jesus. And he, he goes on to say that it also reveals that you're on the devil's side. Right? So um, in the paragraph that we read, again, you know, John says the same thing twice in parallel concepts. So the parallels here are verses 4 and 8. Uh, in verse 4 he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And in, in verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. Right, so sin, he's just trying to define the term. Let's be clear about this. Don't deceive yourself. Don't, don't let yourself be deceived. Is that when you sin, you are opposing God, and you're doing so in the same way that the devil opposes God. Um, and it shows you to be of the devil. Right? It's that seed of the serpent. Katie read in uh, Genesis 3, when God said of the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's saying to the serpent, between you and the woman... Between your offspring, uh, the Greek translation of that is seed. It's the same word that is in our passage a little bit later. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So um, God says there will be enmity between the devil's seed, not just between the devil himself and Jesus, but between those who are of the devil and those who are um, in Christ. So... uh, between Christ himself. He says there will be enmity between the devil's seed and the woman's seed, and, the, and God's promised seed, God's promised offspring, God's promised son, is Jesus. And we see that enmity in the Gospels when in John 8, uh, the Pharisees claimed to be Abraham's seed. We're the offspring of the chosen race, right? We're the good guys because of who our parents were. And uh, the Pharisees claimed to be Abraham's seed, but Jesus informed them that, no, your spiritual father is the devil. Right? And in John 8.44, it says, You are of, the, of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And at the end of that conversation, they picked up stones to throw at him, and he escaped. Right? So there's enmity there. And the enmity um, is, is described in, well, he's the promised seed, and they're the seed of the devil. Right? They're from their father, and they do his will. So... We see that same enmity in ourselves as we make a practice of sinning. That's what John's talking about. So sin says about us, in and of ourselves, that we are against God. Right? That, that there's enmity between us, which characterizes those who have the, uh, the devil as their spiritual father. Right? That enmity characterizes people who have the devil as their spiritual father. And you might claim to have God as your father... But if you deny uh, your sin, if you minimize it, if you live in it, you, you stay in it, then you need to know that your sin identifies you as God's opponent, right? uh, belonging to his, his chief opponent, the devil. Um, and you can't say that you know Jesus Christ and have a good relationship with him if you love what he came to fight and destroy. Right? Um, it says that you, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So you can't cling to those things and be that while claiming to have a relationship with Jesus. So, secondly, we need to know what Jesus has done about our sin. God the Son came into the world <clears throat> as, as a human. He was born uh, to Mary. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He came to take away sins and to destroy the works of the devil, we just read. He fought sin. He fought Satan to the bitter end, to his bloody death on the cross, in order to set you free from it all. He fought to set you free from it. 
It says, uh, you know that he, this is emphatic, he, talking about Jesus, he appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. It's an, it's an appeal to the simple, familiar gospel. You know this, he says. You know this is why Jesus came. This is not, it's nothing new. There's no new information here. You know Jesus came because he fought sin and the devil to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, John says in his gospel, chapter 1, he's recording the instance where uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the same language. Takes away the sin of the world. Right? And that's, he's the Lamb of God. He's the one who does that through his substitutionary sacrifice for us. The Lamb was slain so that the sinners wouldn't have to be slain. We deserve to be slain. There's a lamb that's slain in our place. And, and his death takes away the death that, that we deserve to die because of God's wrath, because of our sin. And, uh, and that's Jesus. He's the lamb of God. He's the one true sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. He does away with it, right? Uh, takes it away as an obstacle between, our, uh, rela- between us and God in our relationship with him. And uh, that was why he came. And John 8, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, it's that same language that we've seen already in our passage, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You're a slave to it. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's Jesus' word. And Jesus breaks the power of reigning sin and sets the prisoner free as we sing. Um, He looses the bonds of sin so that you're no longer a slave to sin, and he does it by dying. He does it by dying for us in our place. In Romans 6, Paul says that we know that our old self, the self that is in love with sin, that is enslaved to sin, that is entirely characterized by opposition to God, we know that that old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So in his death, we find the death of our old self, the self that's opposed to God. We find uh, it destroyed and that we're freed from it. So Jesus opposed sin. He defeated it in his death. He set us free from it because of our union with him, because of our union with him in his death. By his grace, as we are in him by faith, his death to sin is our death to sin. His resurrection life in freedom from sin is our new life in freedom from sin. Similarly, uh, John says in, in our passage in verse 8 that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So this is a parallel concept to him destroying sin, uh, freeing us from its grip and taking it away from us, is that he's destroying the works of the devil. He's the one that God was talking about in Genesis 3 who would come and defeat the devil and undo his works. He's the one who enters the strong man's house, the devil's house. The devil is the prince of this world, right? Jesus is the one who enters into his house and binds him and plunders his house, who casts out demons and who wins the devil's subjects back to himself. That's Jesus. And it says in Hebrews chapter 2 that he himself partook of our humanity. He took our flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. It's the same language. Just destroy the devil, right? The devil had the power of death. He got people to sin. 
which destroyed their relationship with God and earned them eternal death under God's wrath. He got that to happen. <clears throat> the death had the power of uh, the devil had the power of death. He enslaved them to his own kingdom of sin, and he accused them justly before God as those who deserve death. And then Jesus came and submitted himself to the death that we deserve, right, in our place in order to set us free from all the power of the devil, from, from the devil's power. The devil's power of death was exhausted on Jesus Christ. Death uh, is his power, and it was exhausted on Jesus Christ. Death's true, true, uh, true sting, then, was, has been lost. Where's your sting, O death? It's been lost because Jesus suffered the sting for us. By his grace, because of our union with him, we have been delivered from the devil's kingdom and been transplanted into God's kingdom. We were under the power of death, and now we have eternal life. We were the devil's children at enmity with God, and now we're God's children. And so three, uh, we need to look at what, what the gospel now says about you. This is, the gospel is what Jesus did, right? The good news about who he is and what he's done for us. And we need to now look at what it says about us, right? Because your sin says something about you. It reveals something about you. It reveals your identity as an opponent of Christ. But the gospel gives you a new identity in spite of your sin. The gospel says something about you in spite of who you are and what you've done, right? Apart from Christ, your sin tells a story about you, and it defines you, and it identifies and reveals you. Apart from Christ, your, your sin tells a story about you, but the gospel gives you a new story in spite of your sin, in spite of the things that you do, right? That is to say that the gospel says something about you that is not true about you because of who you are. It's not true about you because of what you've done. The gospel says something about you that is true because of who Jesus Christ is and because of what he has done. Right? The gospel says that Jesus' humanity, his perfect humanity, his life, his story, his righteousness, his sinlessness, his relationship with God, his obedience, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his home in heaven, his, his love, all of that is yours. That's what the gospel says about you. That everything that belongs to him belongs to you because of his grace. It's his, but it's yours. Because you're in him and, and he's in you. Because you're united with him by his spirit who dwells in you. You're one with him because of his spirit. Jesus fought sin. He opposed it. He fought the devil. And his fight is yours. His victory is yours. Right? Jesus resisted Every temptation that the devil threw at him and his resistance is yours. It belongs to you. Jesus practiced righteousness and his righteousness is yours. Jesus is God's son and his sonship is yours because you've been born of God and because the son of God dwells in you by his spirit. Jesus is the seed of God. He's the seed. He's the promised one who would crush the serpent. And since he abides in you, you have crushed the serpent. Jesus and sin are antithetical to each other. Right? Jesus and the devil are diametrically opposed to each other. And if you have a real relationship with Jesus, if you've seen him with the eyes of your faith, if you trust in him, and if you know him, then because of him, because you abide in him and he abides in you, 
then you and sin are antithetical to each other. And you and the devil are diametrically opposed to each other. Right? And his defeat of sin and the devil belong to you. It says in verse 5, In him there is no sin. In him there is no sin. It means uh, not just that he is without sin. Of course he is without sin. He's the one who faced every temptation and was, was never, uh, he never responded to temptation with sin, right? He was the sinless one. So it means that he is without sin, but it also means if you're in him, you're without sin. In him, there is no sin. So it says in 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Um, and these are statements about Christians um, that are only true of you because they're true of him, right? They're only true of you, that you are without sin, that you cannot commit sin, that you are righteous because he is righteous, because he is without sin, and you're in him, you're united to him by faith. Jesus is righteous, and if you're in him, you're righteous. That's what the gospel says about you. It's a proclamation of the gospel that John's making here. And no matter who you are in and of yourself, right, no matter what you've done, in him there is no sin. Right? And that's the wonderful miracle of the grace of God, that when you read about Jesus' life, when you read about his works, his death, his resurrection, his reign, when you're reading the Gospels, you're reading your new spiritual autobiography. Right? If you have faith in Christ, the Gospels are not just, an, not just a biography of him, they're your autobiography. Uh, maybe that's not right. You didn't write it. <laughs> They're your bi- biography, right? Uh, because everything that's true about him as the new human being is true about you as a new creation who's remade in his image because you're uni- united to him by faith. If you're in him by faith, you're united to him by his spirit, then that biography of him is your biography. Right? So that's why Paul says in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, right? who loved himself and gave himself, or who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's, it's not me who, I, I, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And it's as you deepen in that relationship with him as the sinless one, lives in you as you abide in the sinless one, the one who cannot sin, the perfect son of God, as you abide in him and you develop and cultivate that relationship, as you grow in your faith and your trust and you dwell in his life vicariously more and more, uh, then you'll actually start to reflect his life in your own life. It'll come out of you. Right? Um, and what the gospel says about you, because it's true of Jesus Christ, then starts to materialize in your life, materialize in your desires, materialize in your actions. So uh, Paul, again, says in Romans 6, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And once you've done that, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Once you've considered yourself dead to sin and alive to God because you're in Jesus Christ, then the outflow of that is that you start sinning less, right? You don't let sin reign in your, in your body to, to make you obey its passions, right? If you are righteous because of his righteousness vicariously being yours, 
that makes you righteous, that's what the gospel says about you, is that you are righteous, then you will practice righteousness. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, you'll know a tree by its fruits. Right? There are indicators. <clears throat> if you're really connected to Jesus Christ, it's going to bear fruit in your life. If you're not, it won't. There will be a different kind of fruit in your life. Um, but you'll know a tree by its fruits. You'll know these indicators of whether there's a vital relationship with God or not. Right? And so if you are a child of God because the Son of God himself is in you, and his sonship is yours vicariously, then you'll live in a way, uh, you'll, live, you'll live like a son, you'll live like a daughter. You'll live in a way that makes that relationship evident, that reality uh, apparent. You know? If you are a child of God, you'll live like a child of God. Uh, you won't practice righteousness perfectly. You won't do it perfectly. We know we continue to sin, but you'll do it really. You really will do it. His righteousness is the source of, of your righteousness as you consider it yours through your union with him, and then his righteousness becomes the pattern for your righteousness, right? for your imitation as you seek to live out his life in your life. And John says that's how you know whether you're a child of God or whether you're a child of the devil. Is his life coming out of you in a way that produces righteousness? If Jesus' own life is yours in such a way that it breaks out into your desires and actions and causes you to live as he lives in righteousness before his Father, then you can know you really do have a relationship with him. Do you know Jesus in that way? 